Hello, everybody. Welcome back. Science Dispatch Podcast, episode 43. My name is Cameron English. I'm your host, as always. Joined again by the thoughtful, the insightful Dr. Chuck Dinnerstein, Director of Medicine at the American Council on Science and Health. Chuck, it's been uh, it's been a few weeks at this point. How are you? What's going on? Uh, I'm doing well. I just, when you say insightful, do you spell out S-I-G-H-T or C-I-T-E? I, <laughs> I think because you're insightful, you can be insightful. <laughs> yeah, I just just trying Double. to find out. everything. Everything's good. It's you know, in, in our world, it's a Memorial Day weekend, and it's it's gorgeous out. It's been a, a fantastic spring. I have to say, it's been nice here. It has been beautiful. And uh, by the way, as Chuck mentioned, uh, Memorial Day has just passed by the time you're hearing this. So uh, happy Memorial Day to all of you out there. And I uh, hope you're spending some time with your families, barbecuing and uh, memorializing the important folks that we all know. <laughs> okay. So we've got two stories to discuss as usual. The first is uh, Chuck's story. And I, as I mentioned off air, Chuck, I love this title. It's you doing your best philosophy professor impersonation, which came first, the cannabis or the schizophrenia. And here we're talking about a very interesting study out of Denmark, I believe. And then we're also going to talk about Pfizer's new weight loss pill. Our, our good friend, Dr. Josh Bloom, has a story called, Will Pfizer's new weight loss pill silence the Ozempic commercials? <laughs> Josh always, as a nearing retirement age, uh, focuses on the key question, <laughs> which is how much advertising he has to watch. <laughs> okay. I hear that. And, and by the way, the answer to his question is no. <laughs> That's right. That's right. You just get two commercials now instead of one irritating commercial. Um, okay. So let's dive into this, this first story, Chuck. Th this study got a lot of headlines. Uh, pe people were intrigued. Um, and I think it's obviously because on the one end, you have the drug warriors who think that marijuana is the the, the next greatest evil behind, I don't know, pornography or what, whatever other bad thing people are concerned about. And then on the other side, you have the, the drug liberators or the drug legalization advocates who say that pot uh, cures glaucoma and it treats pain and it gives you wings and everything, right? So this is an interesting study because it seems that it has the potential to irritate both sides of this argument, depending on how you look at the data. So, so give us a quick rundown of this study and the article you wrote about it. Okay. Well, you know, uh, I think that the, the researcher has been toiling in the fields of schizophrenia and substance use disorders for, for several years. This is not his first paper on the topic. Um, and he begins by pointing out that there has been a rising use of cannabis globally, uh, in large part, as you've suggested, due to its legalization as a recreational uh, drug. Uh, the other recreational drugs we have would be alcohol and maybe tobacco. Um, and uh, with its legalization, there's been a lot of commercialization of that product. And with commercialization has come the market forces that want to differentiate one product from another on the market. And the fastest way to differentiate it besides price is potency. So the potency of weed has gone up significantly uh, for the boomer generation, for which I've been. And as, uh, as I say, it ain't your dad's pot anymore. Uh, the TH levels are quite high. Um, and as a result, with those two trends in place, um, the author has been looking at psychiatric disorders 
for a similar period of time and sees a rising incidence of uh, schizophrenia. So the study he did was to look and see whether it was possible that people with uh, cannabis use disorder, a whole other topic for another day, but people that um, were based uh, on some criteria were addicted to uh, cannabis also had a higher incidence of schizophrenia. And to get at that, he uh, went to a nationwide Danish registry on uh, all patients who were admitted to the hospital uh, with psychiatric disorders. So it, it does leave out the, the outpatient population. And he looked specifically at a population of individuals who had both cannabis use disorder and schizophrenia. So there's some bias in the sampling. And what he found was um, that there was clearly a, uh, a relationship between people using cannabis and developing schizophrenia. And with that, he made what I described as a great leap of faith. And what he wrote was, assuming causality, and I, I, in the article I emphasize those words, approximately 15% of recent cases of schizophrenia uh, among males in 2021 have been, could have been prevented in the absence of cannabis use disorder. But the key part of that sentence is assuming causality, and I was not really willing to make that particular uh, leap of faith. And on that basis, I was a little bit concerned about the article, so I, I thought I would do a little bit more reading and educate myself a little bit more on that topic. So one thing that was in that study was that there were far more people that had alcohol use disorder than cannabis disorder. So why he chose to, to emphasize one of these drugs over the other, you would have to uh, ask him, but certainly he would get better uh, traction with the peer review editors, starting with cannabis. Um, and what they, is clearly true, and what he showed in a prior study uh, of the same database done maybe four years previously, that was that a diagnosis of schizophrenia was posit positively associated with the risk of developing substance use disorders, increasing cannabis, alcohol, stimulants, and, and other substances. So even he recognizes the fact that there is a, a, a entangled relationship between um, the use of substances and, in this particular, a very disabling um, mental illness, which led me to one final paper that looked at the timing of the use of um, substances and the onset of uh, symptoms of mental illness. And that study showed that about a third of the patients had substance use problems prior to the onset of the diagnosis. About a third had substance use disorder uh, at the time of the diagnosis, and a third developed it subsequent to their, their diagnosis of uh, mental illness. And I think that that really speaks to the bottom line of what's really going on, is that in many cases, um, cannabis, like alcohol, is used to self-medicate and to uh, help an individual with uh, symptoms that they find uh, particularly bothersome. So there's a lot to get into here, and I, I think if I'm hearing you right, I tend to side with you in thinking that this study is pretty limited in what it can tell us. 
Yes. But before before we get to that to that, there's a few things that speak to to its support or or at least to its validity as a, as a baseline sort of a study. So let's let's go through these. I'm curious to to get your thoughts. Um, the first is that, and you mentioned this already, is that this isn't your daddy's cannabis or your granddaddy's cannabis, if you will. And I think in Denmark, where this study was performed in 2006, the amount, the concentration of THC in the kind of marijuana you could get was like 13%. And today it's closer to 30%. So we're talking about a massive increase in the psychoactive component of marijuana. And this is the, this is the, uh, the compound that gets you high. If you're not familiar with, with what we're talking about here. Right. So my first question is, and this is, I guess, a little more general than this, this specific study, but the argument or one of the arguments I've heard from drug legalization advocates over the decades is that one of the reasons to, to legalize drug use is that you can regulate it and you can have a better sense of what's actually in the drug and you can control how much of this, the active ingredient or you know the, the, the offending substance, if you will. You can control that when the drug's legalized. And maybe there's some truth to that with with substances that people would consider hard drugs, you know, like, like cocaine and, and uh, methamphetamine and so forth. But with marijuana, it seems that legalizing it, as you said, has created this massive, I guess you could call it a gray market. And the amount of THC that you can get from gummy bears or, you know, from a joint or whatever is much higher. So, so what do you think's going on there? If you have any thoughts well, on that? that you know, that's true. And the, the industry writ large has tried to put in place, um, measures to indicate people what the concentration of THC is in any given uh, product. But, um, you know, inhaling THC, uh, the onset is a lot faster than ingesting THC or putting it under your tongue. So there's there's some, you know, individual variations in there. And, of course, despite the fact that the industry wants to regulate itself, there are always bad actors that will publish um, higher potency levels because that's what what sells, you know. And and I think the other the force is just is just a, a plain market force of trying to differentiate your product from somebody else's um, product on the market. And um, the concentration of THC is an easily manipulated um, variable in the mix. So I think that that's uh, a significant part of it. And I wouldn't doubt for a minute um, that higher potency uh, cannabis may give um, susceptible individuals uh, bad experiences and would be more likely to do it. And I I think that that's where we begin to start seeing um, that people that have... um, whatever constellations of genetics and environmental factors will lead to a, a, a dissociation of personality that is schizophrenia, um, that, that uh, a drug will, will maybe be the last piece, the tipping point, um, to fall in that category. But it's, it, it's there amongst a constellation of other uh, factors that are involved. I see. So this, it sounds like, is sort of the headline-grabbing variable that everybody wants to talk about. As as you alluded to with alcohol, right, that might equally yes. well explain, explain these results. Sounds like genetics has some role to play. It could be 
childhood trauma. I, like it could be so many things that are influencing this outcome, but everyone's yes. talking about marijuana because of legalization and because of, you know, our, yeah. our liberalized because, laws. Right. And because we're, we're, we've already learned that prohibition did not work for alcohol. So that, you know, that, 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 that train has left the station, so to speak. And, and the other thing that I, that I, I think that I brought to the article um, came from my chance to go down to Key West and visit Ernest Hemingway's home down there. And, that, and that's what I kind of ended the article uh, talking about. Ernest Hemingway had a significant amount of mental illness in his family. His father committed suicide. He committed suicide. He was admitted to the hospital with um, uh, depression. He was one of the earliest patients to get ECT. Um, and he was, by all accounts, more than simply a big drinker. He was probably in the range of alcoholism on an objective basis. And this was true when he was in his most productive uh, years. And if you look back on that period of time, this, he was a bare-knuckle fighter for several years and had uh, head injuries from that. He was in two plane crashes where he had head injuries and walked away with concussions. So... Um, it's very hard for me to tell, and I think the story goes, that um, it very well may have been that part of his drinking was uh, an attempt to deal with the demons that were already living inside of him. And I, and I think that that's equally true today uh, for a subset of people with cannabis. And that's a, that leads me to my, my next question, because there were a handful of researchers who responded to this study, and they said more or less what you're saying, which is that people with schizophrenia for one reason or another are probably inclined to some sort of drug use, to some sort of self-medication. And that's probably what you're seeing here. And the most prominent figure I'm familiar with is um, Dr. Carl Hart, who, uh, and I, I'm not terribly familiar with his work from what I understand. He's a big advocate of, of drug harm reduction, and even in some cases, recreational use of harder drugs. And this seems to be his perspective is, is that, you know, and, and we see this a lot too with like <clears throat> people with other mental illnesses like depression, they will seek out a substance like nicotine for, for, for its therapeutic effects. Yes. So, so what, it, do you, do you think that's likely what's happening here is that, that people are going to a substance like marijuana to alleviate think, whatever symptoms they're experiencing? Yes. Well, I mean, we, we see it. The, the people are, are, using legalized medical marijuana in a medicalized way. If you look back at the data on medical marijuana, it, it's often for, for chronic pain, which is, which is a real problem, but is difficult to objectively measure. There's a, certainly a subjective component to it. So I think that um, marijuana is the latest in the drugs that we allow uh, to use for self-medication. Uh, it's it's over the counter now, uh, much like alcohol, and so that it shouldn't be surprising that um, as we take a uh, a drug and put it out to the wide world, we begin to see its real uh, real life consequences. And I, I I think that that's what the what the study points out is that um, once again. Um, there is a, an, an entangled relationship between cannabis and schizophrenia, but it, to say that it causes 15% of, the, of schizophrenia 
uh, I, I think is a leap of faith uh, that I, again, that I'm just not willing to make. I don't think it's anywhere near that level. So I've spoken to three physicians now about this. You're the third and um, third, the two opinion. Other, third opinion. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to get the answer that I want one way or another. <laughs> that's, that's the whole purpose of these opinions. Absolutely. You want. Uh, that's right. I want what I want. I'm going to find an expert that's going to tell me what I want. Uh, no, but in all seriousness, the first two physicians were, were ER Doctors. The first is Dr. Runeet Liv, who's done some writing for ACSH. The second was another ER physician named Dr. Liza Dunn. And both of their perspectives more or less seem to be that there is something going on here, um, but it may not, it's probably not schizophrenia. It's something called cannabis induced psychosis, which is, right, that exists on a spectrum too. It affects people differently. But both of them told me, you know, I would be at the hospital, people would come in. And they had consumed more THC than they knew they had, and they were having symptoms of, of this condition. But they also said, you know, this appears to affect very specific subpopulations of people. It's not that there's a clear, you know, dose-response relationship between how much pot you smoke and your risk of schizophrenia. Would you agree uh, with that? Yes, I, I think we're all saying the, the, the same uh, thing, that there are, there is a, a subset of individuals that um, – for whom cannabis use will trigger um, a mental health break. Um, but it very well may be that there are other um, psychoactive agents, including the ones that we're all very happy with, uh, i.e. alcohol, um, that may cause the same problem and that have been causing the same problem uh, for generations. So let's get into uh, some of the the limitations of this this paper. So right, so that I just try to kind of front load everything that says, well, maybe there's something here, but there there were some concerning things. So for example, and you get at this in your in your title, which is you know this is clearly clearly an association, but which came first. So one of the things that stuck out to me is that the authors of this paper they didn't know how much of the drug people were consuming. It was all self reported. And as we've talked about ad nauseum on the show, people lie about the amount of drug, drugs, food, alcohol, whatever. They, they just don't tell you the truth. So how badly does that limit these results, in your opinion? Uh, I, I think the self-reporting is clearly a part of it. But I think even more importantly is the fact that they, they only looked at a database of people with cannabis use disorder and schizophrenia. So right away, <laughs> there's going to be a linkage. The other problem with that linkage is that um, it's not necessarily unidirectional. I think that that's the bottom line of the story. When I say that who, which came first, it's because it's hard to say whether the schizophrenia caused the cannabis use disorder or vice versa. And there's no data at all in, in what they looked at to say which one of the uh, diagnoses was made first that that you know I had to go look for some other study and then the, the study that looked at that showed that about a third as I said a third before a third during a third after uh, the diagnosis of mental illness uh, was made so that's why I, if, if we're talking about um, the directionality of it that's why I, I like that particular study um, better because it got at the question of which one came first. Right. So it sounds like we just have a long way to go 
with this kind of research. And maybe there is some legitimacy to that in, in that the fact that for the longest time, and it still is actually, marijuana is still a schedule one drug as as far as the federal government's concerned. And, and with state liberalization efforts, it's becoming easier to do this kind of research, but for the longest time, and I've heard other people, other experts say this too, is that it just wasn't possible, or at least it was very frowned upon and it was hard to get funding for research that would, you know, objectively test the effects of marijuana use. And now that those restraints are starting to come off, you can start to do research like this. So over time, hopefully we'll get better design papers with better data and we'll get yeah. to the bottom of this. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's tough because, because you know, we've talked about lots of subjects and lots of epidemiological research on this show. And, you know, 40 years later, we're still talking about you know, certain chemicals that are widely used and, you know, the, the data is still spotty. So maybe I'm just being too hopeful, Chuck. I don't know. The hope springs eternal. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, check out, check out Chuck's article, which again is called, which came first, the cannabis or the schizophrenia, good breakdown of this paper and all the, all the technical details. Now let's move on to uh, Dr. Josh Bloom's story. Well, Pfizer's new weight loss pill silenced the Ozempic commercials. And <laughs> such a, I love that Josh can take important science and health topics and then pair them with whatever is bothering him at that given yeah. point point in time. It's pretty pretty impressive. So uh, you don't have to go through all of the details here, but just give people a little rundown. What what are these drugs we're talking about? And then maybe briefly, how do they work? This is a, a class of drugs that were designed to be used for diabetes. Uh, and, and the thought was that they... Um, suppress your appetite. Um, there's some more recent suggestion that it may be suppressing more than appetite, but um, they suppress the ap- your appetite. So for patients with diabetes, it cuts down on the amount of food that they take in. As a result, that helps control um, their glucose levels. As a side effect of that, there has been a significant and persistent weight loss uh, with the use of those drugs, and people have jumped on the side effect uh, with both feet. So to talk about that, you we have to, you know, get back to talking about people being overweight and people dieting, and dieting to lose weight, as I know from bitter, bitter experience, <laughs> is a tough road to go. And... Um, it can be done, but it requires far more discipline than I've been able to get on a persistent basis. I can do it for a while, but not forever. And and I think that uh, I reflect the majority uh, of people. There have been two breakthroughs in um, weight loss. Uh, the first was bariatric surgery. And bariatric surgery has proven to be far more effective than diet. Um in controlling weight and for people with diabetes in controlling their diabetes. Um, in, in the proper hands, um, surgical intervention uh, to reduce the size of your stomach or reduce your digestive tract um, is one and done, and it lasts, you know, essentially forever. So that was a big breakthrough. Um, and the pharmaceutical people um, have been looking for their uh, holy grail in this area too. And this class of, of drugs 
um, turns out to be uh, what they believe to be the answer. Because if you take it on a consistent basis, it has a reasonably good safety profile and will reduce your weight in a significant manner. And so now they have something to offer um, that's even less minimally invasive than the bariatric surgery. And that's a big reason why um, these drugs have become particularly popular. So the breakthrough here um, is that um, the drugs that are available, Ozempic and its, and its friends, are all injectables. You have to give yourself an injection every week. And uh, what is being touted now um, is a pill. And in, in the world of patient compliance, um, very few people like surgery, more people are willing to take a shot, and even more people are willing to take a pill compared to diet. And, and that's the, the bottom line of why this seems to be um, getting to be a much more popular uh, approach to our, our weight. So with both of these drugs, and I, I'm probably going to mispronounce this, but the new one, Pfizer's new one is called Denuglapron, something like that. Is how you pronounce that it? That close enough to me. I didn't even want to touch the name. Okay. Okay. I don't know who, like which, which PR firm they pay to come up with these drug names, but they need a new one. Cause these are just, you oh, know. Well, this is, this is the, the name that they're going to work with. Then they're going to give you a new name. Okay. Okay. So this Not is sort really. of like the working title of the album kind of a situation maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, all right. So the, the, let's get into the advertising bit, you know, this complicates the issue because you have this clinical data and both of these drugs from looking at the numbers correctly, they seem to reduce your weight over a period of maybe three to six months between like five and 10 pounds. Uh, well, so in the, in the short run, it was um, four pounds for the denuclebron okay. and it, and at a, at a, a longer period for Ozempic, it's 10 to 12 pounds. Okay. And so they're, they're and remember Josh is reporting out a, uh, uh, a phase study, so they don't have their their long term data uh, completely in place. But we would, I would not be surprised that have had very similar numbers that you can get rid of ten or twelve uh, pounds easily without doing anything else in your life uh, by using these drugs. Okay, yeah, and the, just to be clear, the study he's looking at here, this is a sixteen week clinical trial. Yeah. So, so yeah, it's it's not super long term, but it's long enough to to have some kind of a result here. So, anyways. My concern here, again, as someone who's struggled with my weight over the years and has had to work to, to keep it at a reasonable reasonable level, is that people are going to see these ads and they're going to see families dancing in the backyard and having barbecues and they're all happy. Even the dogs are happy in the commercials, as one commenter on Josh's article pointed out. But then layered on top of that, you have Hollywood, which is always a good moral compass, uh, really driving the use of these drugs because you have celebrities, you have musicians and movie stars who are taking these to maintain or lose weight, and they're talking about it on Instagram and TikTok. Yeah, and that's going to drive the popular culture, right? That's going to drive people that consume all of the media. You, you yeah. know, you and me and our friends. So, w what's the fallout of that? I mean, presumably, some of these people do, you know, for medically necessary reasons, need to lose weight. But a lot of people are just like. You know, I don't really like this this flat tire I have around my middle. I'm gonna, you know, inject myself with this and you know just shave off those extra ten or twelve pounds. Yeah. Well, what, think, what, do you, you know, what do you think about all that? I, I think it's true. I, I think that there is a um, 
a problem with our weight overall for a number of reasons and that we've talked about ad nauseum and that the standard answers from your doctors are not things that we want to hear. Eat well, exercise, you know. You know, I can say that. I say it to myself, and sometimes I manage it, sometimes I don't. It's difficult. So if there's an easier fix, people will take advantage of it. And that's why, you know, I said bariatric surgery uh, is an easy fix, but it's an operation. Um, Ozempic and, and this class of drugs is an easy fix because it's an injection or soon to be a pill. And that I, there's a lot of allure um, to the easy answer. Uh, and, and I think that that's why it's going to get um, a lot more play. In addition, because we're talking about patients with diabetes, there are uh, additional cardiovascular benefits um, to these drugs because it controls your blood sugar um, more closely than uh, people with, with, with diabetes have. So I think that that all speaks to it. The the, the two pieces, and this really gets down to marketing, um, is price, because this is $1,000 a week um, for these drugs, if you can get them, um, and uh, fear of needles. And the fear of needles, I think, is what's going to drive people towards the pill. Though when I, I Just to look it up, I looked up uh, the information on Ozempic, and the ozempic needle is the smallest needle that is used uh, in medicine. It's the size of two human hairs. So there's probably some anticipatory um, expectation of pain that's really not there when you give yourself an injection with it. But the people that are fearful of needles are going to be very happy uh, to move towards uh, a pill just on the basis of how the medication is consumed. The next question is going to be whether they're going to price that pill at um, a meaningful number uh, that people can afford. And just to tie it back to something that we've talked about on a lot of occasions in the past, if obesity is a disease, then there's going to be a big push uh, for the insurance companies to cover the cost of these medications. Um, as part of your health plan. That's another messy question because that is an ongoing debate and you have a lot of people now pushing for the fact that obesity, it's not a disease, it's an identity. It's a, it's a culture in and of itself. And, you know, you shouldn't try to force people to lose weight because you're, you're, you're attacking them as people, as people, right? So yeah. that, that's super messy. I don't, I don't know if we can solve that. The other issue that, that I'm, curious about to get your input on as a, as a physician here is that with a lot of medicines, and I think this is true with insulin and, and other drugs that are treated, that are used to treat type two diabetes is that they work so well, they allow people to regulate their blood sugar so well that they, in many cases, don't have to regulate their diet or they don't really have to exercise, you know, and I know a lot of people very close to me who drink way more than they should or eat way more than they should. And they get away with it because they use drugs that can keep their blood sugar within a reasonable limit. So, yes. so I, I, it sounds to me, and again, as a, as a non-expert here, that seems troublesome because you're really not fixing the behavior that's putting you at risk. You're just managing the symptoms. Is there a risk for that here too? I, you know, I, su I suppose there will be, but you know, it depends on what you, it, 
what you're most interested in. If I'm most interested in better hemoglobin A1C levels, better glucose management, and better cardiovascular outcomes than uh, a pill that lets you cheat, I'm happy with. I can deal with that. I can, uh, you know, the healthful behaviors are meant to get to uh, those outcomes that I wanted. So if I can achieve those outcomes in in another way, um, I'm certainly open to it. And, And I think... Um, diabetes has really undergone a huge shift in the last 10, 15 years in terms of its management. First of all, there's more people being diagnosed with it. Now we have the, we have the diagnosis of pre-diabetes, uh, even though many people with pre-diabetes never developed diabetes, but we'll put that to the side. Um, I think that the development of these um, glucometers that we wear where you can start to get feedback on how your activity uh, and your diet influences your particular blood sugar um, is beginning to have a a significant effect. And I think that that will grow um, over time. And if machine learning is looking for a place to to do something useful, that might be um, a good place to start. People are learning how to manage their diabetes without... Um, seeing the doctor every three or four months and without having to hear, uh, unfortunately, the platitudes uh, uh, that the doctor can give you, which is to eat a healthy diet, exercise, check your, your blood sugar three, four times a day and make sure it's within a range. Now it's a, it's a lot more convenient to check your blood sugar anytime you want and, and you can experiment with it. And I think that that may make a huge difference in, in the next few years. And here's my final question, and, and maybe this is the, the other side of the argument, is that a drug like this, since it works by um, lowering your blood sugar in part, it, it reduces your appetite. So maybe, if I'm not mistaken here, people who take this under a doctor's supervision are actually going to learn to get better at regulating their appetite because the drug yeah. is going to it's going to it's going to discourage them, in other words, from eating an entire bag of potato chips because they won't have that same impulse. Right, at the, bio, yes. at the biochemical level. So, is that true? I, I think that it, there's definitely a Skinnerian <laughs> component. <laughs> this, I mean, I don't remember the name of that potato chip that they had, but they developed a potato chip that um, was lower in cholesterol, but it gave you diarrhea. So, you know, you could eat them, but if you ate too many potato chips, you just, you know, you were in the bathroom, and so you learned to regulate your potato chip intake. That way. And, and, and that very well, you know, I think that that's the advantage of glucometers is it makes um, the target um, much more available for one to see it, 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 if one's inclined in that direction. And I think that you're right, that these drugs uh, will uh, cause people to uh, rethink other portions of their diet that uh, make a difference. It's funny, you know, I got to go for away for a while, and uh, we were in Paris where my wife had me on forced marches of 10 miles a day on average. So um, despite the fact that we were eating more, I I, I gained no weight. But what was clear from eating in Paris and eating some just wonderful meals is the portion size in Europe is so much smaller, (laughs) at least in Paris, than it is here. You know, there's no golden corral. 
in Paris. And, you know, it's, it's things like that. If people can learn that, that, that would make a big difference. Well, and just a final thing, I keep, I keep coming up with things to say here as you, as you talk, but it seems that it, it takes, it does take certain cultural factors to drive people to lose weight, you know? And so, and I mean, I don't, I don't think I'm really ashamed of this because it, it doesn't really matter is that, you know, the motivation for me to lose weight back in the day. And for a lot of people, it's, it's vanity or it's, you know, I want a girlfriend or I want a boyfriend or I want to look good in this new outfit or I want to feel comfortable on the beach or whatever. Or, you know, as you get older, at least for me, it's like, as I have kids, I want to be around to spend time with them, which is, it's good for them. Don't get me wrong, but it's selfish on my part. It's not that I'm looking at all of this this peer-reviewed literature and going, well, if I exercise three times a week, uh, my body weight's going to decline by a statistically significant, like nobody cares about that. <laughs> so, exactly. so maybe none of this matters is what I'm getting at. If it helped. And I think this was your point, right? Is if people are getting healthier, then who really cares about everything right. else? Um, you know, if this is going to lead to um, more well-controlled diabetes in people with a lower weight, go ahead. That's fine because all the things that we've done have not worked well, you know. So this is this is something that we can do. I don't think that it'll, you know. I think in fifty years from now we'll be doing something else. But this was it's fine. I as a physician, I have no problem uh, with saying this is another way to manage your weight. Yeah, in fifty years we'll probably be selecting embryos based on their propensity for weight gain. <laughs> which is which is another horrifying topic we've we've yet to explore so i guess i guess we'll see chuck that's all we can say i guess the answer to, to josh's question as usual. And, <laughs> as usual, we'll see how things go it's a science podcast what do you want we don't have we don't have definite answers here unfortunately <laughs> i you know i i i i left with that one line from uh woody allen You'll forgive me choosing Woody, uh, sleeper, and you know he dies and he he's in suspended animation and comes back a hundred years later and he asks where all his friends are, and they say, well they're all dead. It's the, how can that be? They all were eating brown rice, and I, and I think that that's <laughs> that's the difficulty with with these dietary things. We're going to be saying the same thing in another twenty five you know years. That how could this have happened? Why, why were we eating this? Along the way, don't we know that that would have killed us? <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess the only thing we can say with, uh, I guess, with any um, certainty is that, no, this is not going to kill the Ozempic commercials. You're just going to have more drugs, no. more stupid commercials, more smiling yep. dogs in the background. And so Josh's TV time is going to be all that much worse. <laughs> yes, he's going to have to choose another channel and stop watching the geriatric network that we're all hooked to. <laughs> Hey, Josh, just hit, hit the mute button, buddy. That's all it takes. You just mute the commercials, go make yourself a snack, and then come back when oh. your show's back. That's it. Okay. All right. So one more time, this, the story is called, Will Pfizer's New Weight Loss Pill Silence the Ozempic Commercials? The answer is no, but there's some interesting science in here. So go check out the article and read the study. And with that, we'll call it a day. We'll be back next week with episode 44. Until then, you can follow us on social media at ACSHorg. I am at Cam J English on Twitter. If you want to uh, ask questions or talk about the show, happy to do that. Uh, Chuck's not on social media, so you'll have to uh, you have to tweet at the the organization, and then uh, we will get that information to Chuck. <laughs> oh, it gets to me. Not to worry. 
<laughs> this is true. This is true. If you guys only saw the emails that Chuck has to deal with. <laughs> okay. All right, folks. That's it. See you next time. Have a good one. Bye. Mm.